Joshua Bell decided to construct an experiment outside of a DC metro station in January of 2007. He walked in in a long sleeve shirt, baseball cap, nondescript outfit, pulled out his violin, set the case down, threw a little bit of change and some dollars in there to make it look like seed money, and for the next 45 minutes proceeded to play Mozart on his violin as people passed in and out. What they didn't realize was that Joshua Bell was not just any ordinary violinist asking for money. Just a few nights earlier, he had sold out the Boston Symphony Hall where many people paid $100 a piece for cheap seats. And the violin that he was playing was not just an ordinary violin. It was a $3 million Stradivarius. And at the end of the 45 minutes, rather than taking $100 for each person that walked by, 32 people had thrown in $27. More than 1,000 people had gone through in those 45 minutes. There's actually a YouTube clip of this you can look up. Joshua Bell. My question is this. Had they known who they were listening to, would they have believed? That's the same question that people must have posed about Jesus because as he began his public ministry as God the Son, God incarnate, the one who had the power of the winds and the waves of the earth and all that is therein, people still didn't realize who he was. In fact, many people got mad at him. But if they had realized who he was, would they have believed? And if you are able to realize who he is, perhaps the more pressing question, do you believe? Matthew 13, beginning in verse 51. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Jesus, yes, he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus has been sharing parables of the sower, of separating the wheat from the chaff, of good from evil, of righteousness from unrighteousness, how there will be a welcoming of God and there will be a judgment of God one day. And as he concludes this section in Matthew 13, he asks the disciples gathered around him, have you understood these things? And they say, yes, Lord, we have. And Jesus describes it as a master of the house who is able to separate and to discern between the good and the evil, between what is new and between what is old. Jesus builds upon that Old Testament covenant by saying, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. 
and how the new covenant is interpreted in light of the old, and the old points the way to the new. So we need both the new and the Old Testament in our lives. And then when Jesus had finished these parables, the Scripture tells us, He went away from there, and coming to His hometown in Nazareth, He taught them in their synagogue. Now we've seen this before. Hadn't Jesus gone into the synagogue at a young age and astonished everyone who was there with His learning? And so he receives this invitation in his hometown to teach in the synagogue, and what he says astonishes the people who were there, and they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? They're over there. Where then did this man get all these things? In other words... Who are you, Jesus? What makes you so special? You know, in the ancient world, the bloodline was so important. Your genetics determined just as much your destiny as did your hard work and your talents. If you were not born into royalty, if you were not born into nobility, you did not have nearly as much of a chance of making it a successful journey as you would today. And Jesus, though he was from the line of David through his earthly father Joseph, nevertheless doesn't have an earthly nobility to cling to. And so they begin to ask, why should we listen to what you have to say? You're just Jesus to us. I wonder if perhaps something different was going on here, though, because they had watched Jesus grow up. They had watched him before the public ministry began, and maybe they thought they knew something that the other crowds who were amazed at him, maybe they thought they knew Jesus just a little better than other people did. There's three years of separation between my brother and my sister and me. I'm the oldest, my brother's three years younger than me, my sister's three years younger than him, and so there's just enough separation between my sister and I, six years, uh, to allow for some separation. I, I'm proud of my sister. She just bought her, uh, her first house in Bowling Green a few weeks ago with her own money, by the way. So we're all, you know, pretty excited about that. But I can remember very well when my sister was about 15, I was 21, I was old enough for the legal limit to be able to technically train her how to drive. And I remember thinking, you know, we've got this six-month window to where she has her permit, she's going to get her driver's license, and I'm going to be the one to train her. And mom and dad said, that's fine, you go ahead, we've already trained two, you can have the last one. And rather than that lasting for six months, that lasted for about two hours, one weekday afternoon, as we began to try to parallel park in the driveway between the cones that we had set up, and as she began to holler at me because I wasn't being very patient with her. And finally, she said the kicker line. She said, you still think I'm three years old. And I remember when she was three years old. I remember the wreck she had on that tricycle. So truly, I did think exactly that. Maybe you know what that's like. If your children, your grandchildren have learned to drive, you remember the accidents they've had. This is how they're thinking about Jesus. We saw him grow up. We saw him pray. We saw where he was. What makes him so different? Even the the statements that are made later on, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Even his own brothers don't come to faith until after the resurrection. This foolish carpenter from some hit town, from some backwoods family, is going to save the world. Can't you hear their taunts? Who do you think you are, Jesus? 
Someone said it well, they have the greatest privilege of human history to be in the hometown of the Messiah, but that privilege is their faithful undoing. The old expression is true. Familiarity breeds contempt. Certainly there was some pride and envy involved. The Bible says rather than worshiping him, they took offense at him. He made them mad. Anybody in the culture today talking about gentle, loving Jesus who would never hurt a fly, who wants you to be happy and do whatever you want to do, do whatever, he'll forgive you, it'll all be fine. Anybody who talks about that Jesus needs to read the Jesus is in the Bible because the Jesus in the Bible made people mad. The Jesus in the Bible infuriated people, and this is what happens here. At one point, they want to take him and throw him off of a cliff, and he escapes out of there. And Jesus says to them in the middle of this episode, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Echoing the words that John would later write that he came unto his own, but his own received him not. Just as Dorothy does from the Wizard of Oz, Jesus, believing that there's no place like home, goes back and finds out that his home has rejected him. I see Jesus in the New Testament pointing out people for their belief, pointing out Gentiles more than he does Jews. The faith of the centurion, who's whose servant is sick, he says, just say the word and I know this person will be healed as I go. Jesus doesn't even have to go to the house. And Jesus says, I say unto you, greater faith I have not seen in Israel. So the people outside the church often recognize Jesus better than the people inside the church. Park there for a while. Reminds us of what had happened before, just as those people had rejected the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah, so also they reject the words of Christ. And Jesus will say, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen to my words, though one rise from the dead. And listen to me, if you can't believe him now, you're going to have an awfully hard time believing him then. The people reject him. And not only do they reject the message, they reject the messenger. It's been 400 years since a prophet in Israel has spoken. And yet they say John the Baptist is out of his mind, and they say Jesus has a demon, and John is beheaded, and Jesus is going to be crucified. Many reject him to this day. So the outside culture asks, how can first century Jesus tell us about living 21st century life? Surely he's behind the times. So they reject his authority. Or sometimes it gets deeper than that. Some people say, how can I possibly live for Jesus every moment of every day of my life? And somehow what I hear on Sunday doesn't connect with how I live on Monday and what I learn on Wednesday night doesn't add up to how I live on Thursday morning. And so they reject his Power. Or then there's some who believe that wouldn't Jesus want me to live exactly how I want? Surely Jesus wants me to be happy. Surely Jesus, even if I go against what he says, will be okay with who I am. Surely he'll give me a pass. So they reject his word. Oswald Chambers says it well. 
beware of worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and professing your faith in Him as the Savior of the world while you blaspheme Him by the complete evidence in your daily life that He is powerless to do anything in and through you. Could it be that God is working and the way they wish He would work are at opposing ends? See, what happens when God doesn't work in your life the way you think He's supposed to work? What happens when God works differently than you thought He would? The Jewish people said in name that they were after a Savior, but they didn't want a spiritual Savior. They wanted a physical one. They said, we need to get out of the taxation of the Roman Empire. They're putting too much on us. We want to be our own authority. If we can just overthrow the government and get them off our backs, everything will be all right. I think the danger for us in the church of God is that we would become so focused on what God is not doing that we miss out on what He is doing. Easy to do that. Easy to look at numbers and budgets and the things that we look at. But do we see the little areas in which God is working? Do we see the children giving the hand gestures to these songs that we don't necessarily prefer? I hear people talk to us sometimes saying our church needs to be more mission-minded, and I think they mean more mission trips by that, and certainly that would be a good thing. But I don't know what in the world we're doing in Tell City if we're not being mission-minded. I don't know why we're giving 10% of our budget to the cooperative program more than any other church in this association if we don't believe in missions. See, we can't talk about doing missions around the world until we're willing to do it across the street and across the river. And instead of looking at missions somewhere else, we better look at missions right here because before missions can be global, they better be local. Have you told your neighbor about Christ? Do they know you worship Jesus? Very easy to miss out. And Jesus says at the root of this problem is this unbelief that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. One person in the gospel is asked by Jesus, be not afraid, only believe. He says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. So those of you today who are here and are outside of the will of God, who are not living in the way that God has called you to live, you need to understand something. The reason you disobey is not because things are tough in your life right now. The reason you're out of the will of God is not because you're mad at the world and everybody owes you something. The reason that you disobey is because you don't believe. You don't take God at His word. If you don't give him gratitude for the little things, how can you expect him to do the big things? Listen, if you don't praise him when life is tough, you're not going to praise him when life is easy. If you don't give when you don't have a little, you're definitely not going to give when you have a lot. See, that's the reason you come to church. It's not because you want to hear music or preaching, however good or bad that is. The reason you come is because you believe. That's the reason you give. It's not based on how much you do or do not have. You give because you believe. That's the reason you tell other people uh, about Him, not because you know you should, but because you believe. 
God rewards belief and He punishes unbelief. And I don't know about you, but there are certain verses that just stick out to me in the Scripture. If you read your Bible every day, and I hope you do, you should. There are certain ones that just stick out more than others. And I've got to tell you, verse 58 keeps me up at night. It haunts me sometimes. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. My worry is that the people of God would be ungrateful to God and the presence of God would move out with the Spirit of God. Because God can move and work anywhere He wants, but He will not move and work with the people who are not grateful, who do not recognize His presence. So many times the prayer for my life is the prayer that Elisha prays over his servant, Lord, Open his eyes that I may see. I pray that for myself, Lord. Open my eyes that I might see. Because I want you to notice how Jesus describes the kingdom in the previous sections of this passage. He doesn't describe it as the megachurch phenomenon. He doesn't describe it in the way that something would make the local news. He describes it as a mustard seed. It is a little, small thing that doesn't look like very much, but every time someone comes to faith in Christ, every time someone responds in obedience to His Scripture, every time someone learns and seeks to grow in their faith, mustard seeds are planting and are sprouting and are growing. So you have to see God in the little things. When that sun comes up, you better thank Him for it. When He gives you a beautiful day, when He provides financially for your family, when He shows you something in your life where he was protecting you a few months before where you didn't realize it, but now you know, you better stop and thank him. You better say, Lord, I believe. I'm convinced we need to believe now more than we ever have. And our beliefs will only be validated by our actions. Don't say that you believe in Jesus if you're not living for him. Don't say that you trust in Jesus if you won't obey Him. Because the opposite of this passage is also true. Not only did God not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief, but He will do great works for those who believe. He's doing great works right now in your life. You just have to open your eyes that you might see. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.